When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Lisa Vesterlund. She's a behavioral economist and one of the multiple authors of the new book, The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work. And in this conversation, we dive into the book. We talk about why unrewarded work more often falls to women. We talk about how organizations must change to distribute and reward work fairly and how they can do that. We talk about what non-promotable work is and why it's part of everyone's job and we all have it, but how to have less of it and do less of it. And as a male, I got a lot out of this conversation and book, and I know you will too. So I'll just get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Lisa Vesterlund. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Lisa Vesterlund. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. So you wrote this new book with a group of people. So I was kind of curious. At most, I think I've had two guests at the same time, like co-authors. I wasn't sure if I was going to get like three or four different people. Totally fine. One is enough. (laughs) But I, I say that to say that you've got this new book that's coming out called The No Club, Putting a Stop to women's dead-end work. And that is, from the email I got, I just immediately was like, that is a loaded title and very, very, very interesting. And I was very curious. So let's just start there. Let's unpack that. Like, what does that title mean? And let's talk a little bit about, like, what was the catalyst moment for you and your co-authors to say, oh, we have to write about this? Well, I'm glad that you find the title provocative because that that is indeed what our hope is. So the book sort of started about 12 years ago with me and three other professors who were really struggling with the work that we were doing. We we felt overwhelmed with endless to-do lists. And really after, despite the fact that we had advanced pretty well, we really felt like our careers had been sidewailed and we were trying to understand why that had happened. So we decided to get together and try to get our careers back on track and started meeting on sort of a monthly basis to just talk about why is it that we suddenly are so busy and we don't feel like we're getting anywhere. And what we realized slowly, not as quickly as we should have, was that the work that was sort of keeping us really, really busy was work that really wasn't the kind of work that we had been hired to do. So it was a lot of tasks that helped out our organizations, but really didn't help us advance. So within academia, one of the things that is important for the organization, but don't help you advance is doing a lot of service work. And we were all doing a line share of service work. So 
we started off just meeting and talking about how do we end up with all this work? How do we try to get it under control? How do we get back to doing the one thing that really helps us get promoted and that we all really enjoyed doing, which was research? And the more we spent thinking about it, we realized first that the kind of work that was making us unhappy had a certain characteristic, namely that it helped out our organizations, but really didn't help us out. So we called it non-promotable work. And the more we sort of got together and thought about it, we started wondering whether or not this was just us or other people, or in particular, whether or not it was, we all happened to be women. So we were wondering if it was uh, an issue of women doing more of this work. So that started a whole research agenda. And what the book, what we really ended up finding is that women are doing a lot more of this non-promotable work and that it is really holding them back from advancing. And in contrast to many of the other differences we've found between men and women that seem to give women fewer opportunities than men, the fixes to this problem are really, really simple. So, you know, we've been working on gender equity for a long time and really haven't made a lot of headway. The reason why we wrote the book is that we really think that improving the allocation of work is the one thing that finally can help women get ahead. And I'm going to go ahead and say the one thing that might be tricky for people to say or hear or whatever, and just will skirt over it. Well, not skirt over it. We'll deal with it and then move on is that I know a lot of, let's just say male listeners will say, well, but what about me? I also am doing non-promotable work. And you're not saying that there aren't males doing it, but you're saying there's an inequality and you can point that out because you, as well as your colleagues, are researchers who have properly documented this. Yeah, and it's important to, you know, while we don't want people to do too much non-promotable work, everyone has to do some non-promotable work. So if any listener is finding themselves in a position where they're not doing any non-promotable work, I suspect that their careers are not going very far either. So no organization wants people who never steps up to the task in the non-promotable domain. So we all have to do some non-promotable work. The challenge is that women are doing a lot more of it. And even in organizations where they sort of know that women are doing more non-promotable work, it's rare that they understand the magnitude of the difference. And it's very rare that they understand exactly who it's affecting. We work with one professional service firm who by the fact that they were working with us, probably suggested they were suspecting that there might be a problem. And we asked them to look at, this is a firm where all their hours are accounted for for billing purposes. So we could look at exactly how people had spent their time. And we asked them to sort of first characterize all the different jobs that people were doing. And once we had that list, we could say, okay, now tell us, you know, rank these based on what kind of jobs do you think is going to help people get ahead? And what kind of jobs do you think is really not going to be uh, assess when it comes to performance evaluation. And they ranked all the jobs. And then we said, okay, now give us your data over how people were billing their time. And it turned out that women were spending 200 more hours per year on non-promotable work. And you know, while they might have suspected it, it was very clear by their response to the data that they had no idea that the problem was as big as it was. Another thing that they didn't seem to be aware of was that this was not just a question of junior women doing a lot of non-promotable work. It was also a question of senior women doing a lot of non-promotable work. So from their perspective, they certainly didn't intend to give women that much more non-promotable work, 
but showing that their best employees, their senior employees were also spending so much more time on non-promotable work when they could be adding really highly valued work that would contribute more to the organizational currency made it clear that they had to make changes and they did. So a couple of thoughts. One, that 200 hour number is, I I did a quick math. Uh, I did a quick math. I don't think that's how you put that, but that's, let's just call it that. So if we're talking about the quote, normal work week of 40 hours a week and we divide 200 by 40, we get five weeks. So that's a whole month out of the year and a week that they're doing those tasks instead of the tasks that are promotable. And then the other thought is, we keep using this phrase, non-promotable work. We probably should clarify what that actually means before we move any further. No, so, so that's a very important question. And I think part of the reason why it's really important is that once we get the concept of non-promotable work into our vocabulary, it makes it much easier to talk about it. And it makes it much easier to point it out when somebody unfairly is being given non-promotable work. So what we mean by non-promotable work is work that is important to the organization, but doesn't help advance your career. So the non-promotable work for an individual will change over your career. Work that's non-promotable to someone senior to you could very well be promotable to you. But the, the characteristics of the work is that non-promotable work is not critical to sort of the organization's currency. It tends to be not visible and it tends not to rely on your specialized skills, which means that lots of people can do them. So as a, you know, one of the common examples is if you're doing a lot of non-revenue generating work in your organization, that's not contributing to the bottom line that the organization really cares about, and it will tend to be non-promotable. You know, when we talk about non-promotable and promotable work, we should also be aware that it's it's more of a continuum. You know, so even when you look at non-promotable work, you know, you can get a client that brings in lots of revenue versus a client that brings in a small amount of revenue. If you get that less a client and everybody else has clients that are newer and have better prospects that bring in more revenue, that work is more promotable. So one of the things, you know, I've done a lot of interviews with young males and females when they first enter the labor market, because what's disturbing is to see how quickly these differences are showing up. And I spoke to a a woman who within two years had been assigned or pretty much immediately was assigned her own client. She was the only person working on the client. And it was a client that a senior partner had had right before he retired. And she was sort of suspicious that this was not the place that she should be spending her time because everybody else seemed to be working in teams and much larger clients. But someone had told her that it was good that she had a client all by herself. So it's just to say, even when it looks like it's promotable, she was still working with a client that was bringing in revenue. But compared to what everyone else was doing, it was a non-promotable task. So, you know, you can think about non-promotable tasks as taking notes at a meeting and writing a meeting summary. Onboarding new employees is a very critical task for the organization, but it's definitely not going to give you any billable hours. You know, there are lots of sort of examples outside of sort of the standard office environment. One of the examples we have in the book is that there's a large study where they looked at supermarket clerks. The way you get advanced within a supermarket is that you get experience in lots of different positions. And what they 
saw in the study was that women were always assigned to do checkout, whereas the men got the experience of walking around the store and sort of lording the entire store, whereas women every single day would show up and sit at the checkout counter and never got to have the broader experience. So the type of non-promotable work really varies across jobs, across ranks. But what's intriguing is when you ask people what is non-promotable, they pretty much all know. So once you start thinking along that spectrum, it's like, will people care how well you did this? Will people notice that you did the work on this? So if you help somebody with a presentation, most people is going to notice the person who gave the presentation, not the person who helped doing the slides. So there's sort of a wide variety of work. Of course, you know, there's sort of the office housework that falls under non-promotable work. So doing holiday parties and things like that, of course, is non-promotable as well because it does not contribute to the organizational currency. Thanks for the clarity there. That really helps. I think a lot of people are thinking, so non-promotable, is that like working in the mailroom and then moving up from there? No, that actually is promoting from, you know, within. Whereas I would say it's a little bit tricky, although you said it's easy to identify it once you start thinking about it, talking about it. I guess that's kind of my next jumping point here is how we identify those non-promotable tasks. I mean, again, the whole book, the, the front end of the title of the books is The No Club. So we're saying no to non-promotable tasks. But in order to say no, you have to know which of those tasks are non-promotable that you're getting asked to do. Yeah. So, you know, the tricky thing is as much as we want to say no to non-promotable work, it's, it's a challenging task to say no to non-promotable work because the important thing that we find in the book is that women end up doing a lot more non-promotable work because they're expected to do more non-promotable work. So because they're expected, they volunteer more when they're just in a setting. That, you know, if you think about how is non-promotable work allocated, it is allocated very often by saying, asking for a volunteer. We have this notion that if we come into a meeting and we have a client that nobody wants, then we can just say, who wants to take this on? And then you get to that horrible, silent moment where everybody just sits around. Everybody knows nobody wants to do it. And the question is, who is the one who finally says, sure, I'll do it. What we're finding in one of our studies is that women are 50% more likely to raise their hand in that setting. What we're also finding is that if there's a manager that sort of gets to look at somebody first and say, you know, could you take this on? They're 50% more likely to look at the women and ask them to take it on. And it's a really good strategy to do that because women say yes, 50% more than men. So there's sort of this expectation that women are going to take it on, which makes it as much as our club was called the no club. And indeed, we were striving to say no to non-promotable work to the extent that we could. It is very, very tricky to do that without experiencing backlash. So part of what the book talks about is that this really is up to organizations. We need organizations to understand that this is really costly for them to assign women more of the non-promotable work because it prevents us from identifying what their true talent is. So coming back to your question of how do you identify it, I, th- I think one of the ways that we're identified is to start talking about it. I, I spoke with another woman who was working in mergers and acquisitions, and she had been asked to recruit summer interns and was very excited because people had told her that that would give her broad experience within the organization. She was very, very talented and was committed to staying in the organization. But there was no mentor around to tell her, if you're in mergers and acquisitions, you should be working on mergers and acquisitions. You should not be recruiting interns. 
So a large part of it is talking about as part of the mentoring process is what is the word that really will help you get ahead? And what's intriguing when we've been talking to men is that many of them seem to have a, either a better network or a better sense of what it is that will help them get ahead. So we've certainly seen men who are very strategic, both in the promotable work that they get, but also very strategic in the non-promotable work. So as I said, everybody has to do some non-promotable work, but I was talking to one young gentleman who, uh, for the non-promotable work, had decided to sign up for the sports committee. It sounds like, okay, well, how could the sports committee be advantageous? But it was because all of the senior management showed up for the sports committee. So even though the task itself was non-promotable, it gave him access to promotable work further down the line. So helping everybody understand when they started a new job, what is the work that we really care about? We all have to do some non-promotable work, but as long as we, you know, at least if everyone has the same sense of where they should be headed, we're giving them a better sense of the task that they should pursue and certainly a sense of loss if they repeatedly are assigned the work that will not give them the same opportunities to get ahead. It seems to me that, or at least it feels like to me, that this is a, a cultural issue. And, and I, when I say that, I mean that on kind of three different levels, maybe more. You might have better insight on this. One is the macro level, just the culture at large, the world, you know, on this problem, which this book comes along to give greater awareness to. Number two would be the individual company's culture and the way they look at non-promotable and or promotable work and the differentiation between that. But then three, women themselves, and this is where the no club comes in, is the way that they approach the opportunities or lack thereof of promotable work. Is there any other maybe level I'm missing? So your your point is, is spot on. So that's part of where the research that we've done has been so intriguing because it very consistently, every result we have comes back to the differences coming from expectations that women will do it. And that is indeed consistent with you saying sort of the, as a, an aggregate level, we all expect women to do it. At an organizational level, we all expect women to do it. But women too expect women to do it. So if we're sitting in a room and we're asking for a volunteer, if I don't think the men in the room are going to volunteer, then suddenly it becomes optimal for me to volunteer because otherwise somebody's going to get in trouble and I would rather nobody got in trouble. So because we have this collective expectation that women are going to step up, they end up having to step up. So we're playing what we're basically calling a coordination game in economics is that we're sitting around, we're trying to figure out who's going to be the one who takes it. And, you know, because it is coming from this expectation, we're all, we all have to buy into that being the type of equilibrium that we're playing, that we hold these expectations and we all abide by it because we're playing that equilibrium. It becomes in the women's interest to also volunteer. So, you know, one of the interesting things we saw in one study was where we have managers come in and see the people in the group and we say, who would you like to ask? You know, it's not a binding commitment, but who would you like to ask to volunteer? It doesn't matter if the manager is male or female. They all ask the female. So I was chair of my department. And if you have a long list of to-dos and you're trying to get work done and you need to assign work to someone, you need to just get it done. 
and you are inclined to go and ask people who will say yes. So at one point, I was asked to find a list of committee members for the dean. I was very selfish with my time, and I said, who's going to say yes the quickest? And it wasn't until I submitted the list to the dean that I realized that I had asked nothing but women. And indeed, every single woman I asked said yes. So, you know, part of this collective expectation is that we're all behaving according to it. And we need to sort of shake up that equilibrium so that women feel empowered to say no. And if once we start realizing that that's how we're behaving, it becomes much easier to change the ways that we allocate things. It's silly to ask for volunteers if we know that we're going to end up with a bunch of women and if that's not what we want to do. It is foolish to randomly go out and ask somebody if you're, or not randomly, it's if you know that you're prone to ask a lot of women, you need to take steps before you go out and ask to make sure that you don't ask women every single time that you have a test that you know nobody wants to do. So making a list of potential people that you can ask in advance so that when that, you know, five second request comes in and you need to assign it, you're prepared to go and ask somebody else. So once we talk about the non-promotable work and how it's allocated, it makes it easier for us to respond. So for example, instead of asking for volunteers, we have a lot of committee meetings at the University of Pittsburgh. One of them is the promotion and tenure committee. We always go in and somebody says, who will be the chair of the committee, which means that you get to write a report at the end of the committee. So it it sounds like a very honorable position, but it is something that nobody wants to have. So indeed, everybody will say, I don't want to have the task. Instead of asking for volunteers, which we've done probably for the first 15 years of the time that I've been at University of Pittsburgh, we now put names in a hat and draw a name out because nobody wants to do it. So why not just ask to have it done randomly? So the solutions are just so simple. So once we know we're making these mistakes, the fixes are pretty easy. Yeah. You know, it's got that rotation. Ultimately, it's it's equal. It's equality, right? As you're talking, I'm going back in my head over cultural differences. I want to go to the no club in just a second, but I want to talk as far as the org level. It seems like that's some of the fix you were just talking about. And even just the acknowledging of one, acknowledging the problem that it exists having awareness, but then two saying, well, we have all this non-promotable work and it doesn't make sense for certain people to only be the ones that do it versus others. In fact, we should probably share that around or come from the perspective of, okay, here's a person, male or female, and especially both that are doing non-promotable work to a degree that is maybe noticeable. And you say this in the book, there is non-promotable work that prepares you to do promotable work or non-promotable work that prepares you slash gives you access to future promotable work. In other words, we're not saying every single thing on your to-do list always is going to have this just immense personal satisfaction meaning behind it for you or the company. That's just life, right? There's grunt work. There are things that have to be done, but it's the sharing of that. It's the equilibrium of that being evened out, in other words, that we're talking about here. And so our argument is, you know, of course, there's sort of a fairness perspective in what we're talking about. But we actually think there's a very strong business case for not wanting to distribute the work that we're currently doing. So, you know, it's sort of very obvious from a, an efficiency perspective that in order to reach your potential as an organization, you need to understand who's good at what, and you will not figure out who's good at what 
unless you give them equal opportunities. And once you know who's good at what, you need to be thinking about, well, what could Sue be doing if I didn't put her on the holiday party? What is the cost of that assignment so that I don't just go for what, who will take on the work, but also think about what is the opportunity cost associated with assigning her there? Another reason why it's an important business case is that, you know, we're talking a lot about people quitting their jobs and moving elsewhere. People are unhappy if they do a lot of non-promotable work. So if you're concerned about attracting and retaining talent, giving them opportunities to do promotable and non-promotable work is critical. So one of the issues is sort of like, we're, we're not saying that everybody should do the same amount of non-promotable work. We're arguing that you should be doing non-promotable work that corresponds to your skills within the organization. So biggest star in your organization should be spending less time on non-promotable work than sort of much lower ranked or less uh, an employee with less talent. So at a minimum, when people first get hired and we don't know anything about their skills, we should make sure that they're doing the same amount of promotable and non-promotable work so we can identify that talent and give them equal opportunities to demonstrate it in advance. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people, or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond. Obviously, the title is called The No Club. So what is this club and how exclusive is it? It's uh, exclusive for our particular No Club. So the No Club is exclusive. Indeed, we've had many people who wanted to join, many of them men, but we decided to keep it exclusive. Now, anybody, of course, is free to start their own No Club. 
And for us, it has really been incredibly helpful to have a no club. So as I said, one of the things that we, you know, in the beginning, we would meet every month and sort of hold one another accountable to the things that we had taken on. I had the problem of taking on way too much and always thinking that I magically had more than 24 hours in a day. So I was working far too much. And one of the things that that this group of women made me aware of was that I never thought about sort of what was my implicit no. What were the things that I, when somebody came to me and asked me to do something, what were the things that I implicitly was saying no to? And was that a correct trade-off? Whereas, you know, being in academia, I would often get students to come in very last minute and ask me for a letter of recommendation or read a paper over the weekend. Sometimes complete strangers would send me a paper and ask me to read it over the weekend. And I always felt very selfish in saying no, because how could I not help this person who needed my help? But once I became aware that my implicit no always was not to spend time with my kids and my husband over the weekend, it became much easier for me to say, I'm sorry, I, I know you need comments by Monday morning, but you really should have told me earlier. And you know, I, I stopped feeling so selfish when I said no, because I realized I really wasn't taking things away from myself. I was taking it away from my kids. So what was nice about the No Club was that we all had different things that cost us to say yes to too much. And when you're a member of a group that repeatedly asks you, what request did you get? Did you say yes or no? What are you planning to give up in order to make room for that? It helps you pay attention. And it also, it it really helped as much as we say it's difficult to say no, and it really is, and, and you have to do it cautiously. It did help us develop techniques for saying no. And, you know, while many of the problems were coming from our organizations, it was also coming from ourselves. We had a tendency to underestimate how much time it would take to complete a task. We had a tendency to think that while we were super busy right now, we wouldn't be super busy next month. So, you know, we didn't think about the future. And so we we got much better at realizing that if we're busy now, we're probably going to be busy next month as well. So sort of understanding all these triggers really helped saying no. And it also helped understand how do you respond when you get a request that is not so easy to turn down? How do you make sure that you sort of say yes while saying no at the same time? You know, so if you get a request, there's sometimes where you just can't say no. But you can ask, if you want me to take on this task, could you take one of my other non-promotable tasks away from me instead? Or could we cut up the non-promotable tasks so that I do this part and somebody else does another part? Or, you know, can I do it this time? And then somebody else does it next time. So developing all these strategies for sort of saying yes while saying no really was tremendously helpful in getting our work lives under control. Well, and a lot of the skills and awareness and and the tactfulness of the responses and creating those are things that listeners of this show will have heard of before in terms of Oh, it's the sunk cost fallacy, in other words. Like, well, I've already said yes to so many different things. I can't now say no. No, it's you can say no. In fact, there are negotiations to be had here. So yeah. I think that ultimately it, it kind of comes from both ways. It's how do you from the ground level, from a no club and creating your own maybe, 
do it as like a, a mastermind small group level where you are, you know, questioning from your own perspective, what you're doing, how you're doing it. And you have others who are trusted council members that are in turn doing that for you and you for them. But then there's the other side of it, which is how do we start to enact change in the organizations that we are a part of? Yeah. And and that's where the heavy lifting has to come because as much as we were getting really good at saying no or sort of deflecting or postponing or, you know, working hard to try to lighten our load, it turned out that the work that we got rid of very often would just go to another woman. We were fortunate to be in a position where we're more senior. So the consequences to saying no were much less severe than what it would be for a junior woman. So the change has to be coming at the organizational level because that's the only way to to change this expectation that makes it easier for all of us to decline the work and make sure that it's more equally distributed. And we, we talk a lot about it in the book on how to see change within your own organization. Many of the solutions that we propose is so obviously fair that, you know, nobody's really going to object. If you ask a volunteer and somebody proposes, why don't we just take turns? It's very hard to object to that because it's so obviously fair. Why don't we just draw names out of a hat? Well, of course, it's better just to draw names out of hats. So some of the solutions are so easy that, you know, it's, I don't think it would cause any conflict to propose them in an organization. The biggest thing to bring in, I, I really think the biggest step is to get awareness. And you can get to awareness, of course, by talking to senior administrators, but you can also get to awareness just by bringing up the concept of non-promotable work. You know, you, you may not want to go into your manager and say, oh, I'm doing too much non-promotable work because most managers will argue that all work is promotable. And, you know, but you could say, you know, I, I want to contribute the most I possibly can to the organization. And I feel like the tasks that I'm giving are not the ones that really is utilizing my skills in the best way possible. So, you know, can we get me onto more of the promotable work or the work that really is well aligned with the organization? So just bringing attention to the concept of non-promotable work will go a long way. We we had one case here that, so at the university here, they have fortunately become very aware of these issues and are paying a lot of attention to it and changing the way that work is being allocated. But just the simple awareness has triggered a a number of interesting situations, one of which was that there was a committee that showed up at the college level where all the representatives from the sciences happened to be female and the sciences are heavily male. So having every single representative from the sciences show up and be female was noticeable, but might not have been noticeable before they knew about non-promotable work. So the committee was dismantled and sent back with a demand from the dean saying, this is not an acceptable committee. You need to get a more representative sample from the faculty. So the awareness will make people notice when things aren't right. So awareness, changing the rules, sort of assessing whether or not something should be promotable instead of non-promotable is, is another important step. There's a lot of the work that is being done that is really, really critical to the organizations, and yet we don't reward it. You know, there was this interesting study that came out from McKinsey and Lean In just last year, where they spoke to more than 400 organizations and asked them what work was important to their organization. So like diversity and inclusion was seen as being important uh, for the organization. And it was like 80% of organizations thought it was important. But 
only 25% of the organizations rewarded it in any way, helping out colleagues. I mean, if we want a collaborative workforce, helping out your colleague is hugely important. It was, you know, I forget, it was like 80 or 90, no, it was, I think it was actually 95% who thought that it was important to work with your colleagues. And again, that was only rewarded by 25% of organizations. So reassessing if some of the non-promotable work really should be promotable so that more people will step up to the task is, is another way of improving this. It seems to me it really does come down to awareness. And luckily, this book is now out or out any moment now. We're recording this in advance of the book releasing. But that said, I'm sure some people are curious as to where they can go to find out more, as well as, honestly, working through the book to be able to go in and assess you know, their mix of promotable and non-promotable work that they have. So what I want to do is send people to where they can find out more about the book. As we're recording this ahead of time, it's about to release soon, but I think the best place would probably be the noclub.com. That's an easy website. That's what we're talking about. It's the name of the book without the subtitle, which is good. That'd be a really long URL if it was the whole subtitle too. Anyway, the noclub.com. Is there a better place to send people to? I think that's probably it, right? That's the best place to go. It also talks about where we're giving talks. The reason why we wrote this book is that we really believe that changing the allocation of work is the way to give women the opportunities that they have been hoping for for a long time. And it is a change that can really help organizations reach their potential. We're very eager to get the message out and to get people to think about ways in which they can improve this. So part of the reason why we have a list of the talks that we're giving is that we're very eager to talk to organizations who want to learn more about this so that we can bring this awareness to non-promotable work and finally put a stop to women's non-promotable work. Honestly, I was unfamiliar with the term non-promotable work, which I think is probably going to be brand new to everybody listening, as well as just, I mean, you kind of hear, you know, in terms of gender, pay, discrepancy, disparity, et cetera. But you don't think about it in terms of the actual work and opportunities and so on. And I think that this brings awareness not only to the problem, but gives some of the initial inertia and catalysm to the solution. And so I am really glad that I am now aware of this. So thank you so much. Thank you. And and I could not agree more on the pay issue because what we're fighting is that if you are given non-promotable work, you will get paid less, but you also can't improve your pay through negotiation. So we've been so focused on it being up to women to lean in and negotiate and compete and be confident. Our work suggests that they're being held back and it really is up to the organizations to give them an opportunity to do all the things that we wanted them to do. But when we're giving them all the non-promotable work, they can't lean in, they can't negotiate, they can't compete. Because they're held back by this, you know, tremendous anchor of work that helps the organization, but doesn't help them advance. Yeah. Let's start fixing it. That's all I got to say is like, this is a great opportunity. This is a great wedge to kind of say, look, this is something that you need to be aware of if you weren't already. And now that you are, let's help. Let's make this happen. So Lisa, so glad to talk to you. I'm personally so glad to be aware of this. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was uh, lovely to talk to you, Eric.
Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Lisa Vesterlund. I like going beyond the to-do list in some of these topics that seem very fringe when it comes to productivity. But I can tell you this, talking about non-promotable work is a universal thing. Although in this case, yes, there's an uneven amount of unrewarded work more often falling to women. And that is definitely something that we should be doing something about. So if you enjoyed this conversation, let's help spread the word about this topic in this book and make an impact. You can hit the share button on whatever podcast player app of choice you're listening to this in. Share it with somebody that you know needs to hear this. Or you can hit the share button over on the podcast show notes over at beyondthetodolist.com. Thank you again for sharing. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you next episode. Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting, marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.